this week. Uh, first and foremost, this banking crisis or whatever you want to call it. I'm not the most knowledgeable about these things, but I'll give my understanding. You know, I'm the kind of guy who, if we get a new appliance or something, I just start putting it together and trying to use it. And then sometimes it works. Sometimes hopefully I don't damage it. And then I have to go back and God forbid, read the instructions. But first I'm going to try to use it. And then only, only if I fail, do I actually look into the instructions. And that's kind of how I am with a lot of these things. I'll just give my understanding of it as I can muster. And then if it doesn't make sense, then I'll have to go back and read more on it. I've read a little bit on it, but I don't feel like I've, you know, <laughs> could say with confidence that this is what's going on, but I'll just give you my understanding and then uh, you can make of it what you will. But my understanding is the Silicon Valley bank uh, had some problems because I think the banks after the financial crisis had a bunch of requirements they had to have. And one of them was having a certain amount of uh, securities um, reserves that were in a certain form of uh, instruments and treasury bills counted as those instruments. And so they bought a lot of treasury bills when the interest rates, long-term treasury bills, when the interest rates were really low. So you'd get like, you know, a 30 year bond paying like 2% or whatever it was that they owned. And now uh, the rates you know, or 5% for those bonds. And so what happens in that case is the value of those lower interest bonds go down, obviously. The value owning something that's paying you 2% 2 a year for 30 years is obviously a lot less valuable when you can get the same thing that pays you 5%. So if you were to sell it, you'd have to sell it at a big loss. And so I think that these banks have these big losses on their books, basically, and they have to mark them to market at some point. Like there's a point at which they have to say, okay, what are your assets worth? And then when they evaluate the value of their assets, these long-term 2% bonds, they're worth a lot less than what they paid for them. And then they're below the requirements. They're at some risk. And then I, so that's like going on at a lot of banks, not just Silicon Valley Bank, but Silicon Valley Bank was particular because um, it had a lot of Silicon Valley businesses invested in it. And those aren't the FDIC insured. FDIC insures deposits at most banks for up to 250K and anything above that is uninsured. So if the bank has a run and you have 500,000 there, you're only going to get the first 250K back. You're only guaranteed to get the two, first 250K back. And then the other 250K is just gone. At least that was the understanding uh, before last week. And so I think once they realized that this bank had these, had to mark to market some of their losses and we're going to uh, need to raise capital to meet the requirements, then uh, people got nervous. Uh, and I think Peter Thiel, billionaire, pulled out a lot of money from it. And then sort of the run was on. That's my loose understanding of what happened. Um, it wasn't like they had, you know, bet on a whole bunch of mortgage securities or owned a whole bunch of mortgage securities that weren't being paid back that went to zero. It was just that the value of their long-term bond, hold bond holdings had declined precipitously with the very rapid raise in interest rates over the last year. That's my understanding. And so once there was a run on that bank, people started wondering, well, a lot of banks have this problem because banks similarly were forced to capitalize with instruments like these long dated bonds and not all of them hedged against it. And then so, you know, there's a, a risk that people would pull their money out. And there's sort of a side thing going on. If you follow Nick Carter's feed, he thinks that, that after uh, Silvergate, which is a bank that I think had collapsed couple of weeks ago or went to zero and was loaning to a lot of crypto companies and then the Silicon Valley Bank. Then the feds went and seized a couple other 
crypto-friendly banks that were not insolvent, that didn't have any uh, glaring problem. And he thinks that this was sort of a hit. It wasn't an accident. These banks went down, that this was sort of initiated by the government in order to uh, deter crypto investment or even crypto involvement with other banks so that they didn't want um, a lot of on and off ramps for crypto. Now, I hate the word crypto because it's a bullshit word. Basically, there's Bitcoin, which is the only crypto, in my opinion, or you could put it differently. There's Bitcoin and there's crypto. And crypto is another word for shit coins, which are just basically centralized securities that operate on a blockchain. And there's nothing so remarkable about the blockchain technology in and of itself. What makes it remarkable is in combination with a decentralized protocol and an uncensorable money that nobody controls. Just the blockchain itself, when it's controlled centrally, doesn't seem to be a major innovation. So that's what he was saying, that this was not just by accident, that they actually came for these banks to undermined uh, sort of the escape hatch, uh, which is Bitcoin. Uh, in the meantime, Bitcoin was about 20,000 at the time that this news broke and it went up to 26 at one point. It's like around 25 right now as we record this because if you're nervous about the security of your bank deposits, where else are you going to put your money? I guess you could put it in treasuries, but you know, usually you're buying treasuries through a brokerage and they hold it in trust for you. I guess you can buy treasuries I just discovered directly from the treasury itself. And I was actually almost thinking of putting an account there and buying some. But if the banks are all collapsing, you know, the government, the US government as a counterparty may also be risky. So it's a little bit scary if you think, well, my money in the bank is not rock solid, right? You, you, you make investments and you calculate risk. You think I'm going to invest in this company. I'll buy some Tesla. I'll buy some Apple. And you think, well, there could be a, a sales, you know, Apple could have a dud with their new iPhone release or Tesla, you know, may not sell as many cars this, this time and you could lose money, but that's a calculated risk. And you look at the company before you buy and you do some research. And if you're buying a corporate bond, you're going to look at the solvency of the company, the balance sheet before you put money in that. But when you put money in the bank, you're usually not thinking, how solvent is this bank? You just assume it's a bank. Like, I'm putting money in the bank. It's my money. But it's not your money. Uh, apparently, at least technically from a legal standpoint, you are loaning money to the bank at you know, 0.03% interest or whatever your shitty interest rate is for your checking account. Uh, you're loaning the money to the bank. And so um, the bank is FDIC insured usually. I'm double check. Not all of them are, but most of them are to 250K. But it's also like you wonder, let's say uh, you had hurricane insurance in, in Florida and the biggest hurricane in history wipes out the entire state. Is the insurance company going to be alive to pay the bills? I mean, even if they're based in Chicago or wherever, they're going to be able to pay for the entire state. Well, probably not. So your insurance didn't save you because it was such a catastrophic event that even the insurance company got wiped out and it, you were paying money into that policy for no reason. And then you wonder if all the banks, if there was a huge bank run, would this FDIC insurance kick in? And even if it did, would it kick in in a way that didn't just inflate what it was so that it was trivial? You know, if, if 250,000 ends up being the new 25,000, then you really haven't insured your $250,000 deposit. And there's, you know, obviously fractional reserve banking, you know what that is. That's um, the bank can lend out 10 times what it has in deposits and in reserves. It may own some treasuries. It may, you know, have a bunch of deposits, but it's lending out much, much more. And if people decide that they want their money, there's a run on the bank and the bank doesn't have it. And the only reason the bank uh, is able to operate is because it's very unlikely at any given moment that everybody's going to ask for all their money at once. 
And so they've done the math and said, you know, there's a less than one or 0.01% chance that everybody's independently just going to decide they want their money right now. So if any one person or 10 people want their money, they'll get it. But if a certain amount of people want it, they can't get it. And that's the problem with fractional reserve banking. And the other problem is it's not independent, these probabilities, right? It's, it's totally unlikely that all of us independently would just say, I need all my money. I'm going to go buy a house or I'm going to go buy something with it. I mean, anyway, you'd probably try to get a loan if you're going to do that. But, you know, I'm going to just take out all my money right now. That's not likely independently. But the thing is, these are correlated variables, right? <laughs> the thing that would make one person want to get all his money out uh, is the same thing that would make another person, which is fear that, you know, the money will not be there if you don't take it out. Or, you know, everybody wanted to get some Bitcoin while they still can. Things that would be correlated among people makes it a hell of a lot more likely than just everybody independently having a particular product project or reason to take their money out. And so obviously whatever the math is behind the the chances of a bank run, it's it's probably not right if they're considering everybody sort of an independent variable. And then you add social media and the speed with which information travels and it's very easy to see a contagion where everybody's wanting to get their money out quickly. And the other problem with fractional reserve banking is there's a probability of 100%, probability of one, that over time there will be a bank run. Eventually there will be one, right? It's just, it's necessarily the case that given a long enough time frame, this will happen. And they're just hoping that it's a longer time frame than you know their lifetimes or their uh, tenure at the bank or their responsibility for it. But it's basically setting up for a disaster. And of course, the longer banks are bailed out, the more fragile the system the more likely there is there is to be some sort of event. I mean, the only, the reason this happened in the first place, why these banks lost so much value from their uh, their very safe treasury investments, long-term treasury investments, was only because the Fed had eased for so long that rates were close to 0%. And then in order to stop inflation, which was the predictable result of printing all that money in COVID and having these 0% rates, they had to fight inflation by drastically raising rates. Now, they only raise it to 5% or whatever, which is historically not that high, but it's historically unprecedented to go from zero to five in the year, I think, because it's not just the, you know, 5% raise isn't, isn't the issue. It's the thousand percent raise or the 10, you know, whatever you want to start. If you started half a percent and end up at 5%, you've raised a 10X, right? Imagine if the rates were 5% and they raise them to 50%. I mean, it's the same magnitude of raise and and what and you know and everybody's calibrated to that prior magnitude you know every bank had borrowed with these low rates thinking you know 2% is is good it's fine we we can lend out money at 2% because when we borrow money we're only paying a very small amount and now you know it costs more to borrow money once the cost of money goes up the value of those 2% 30 year treasuries goes way down so that's my understanding but i don't know about the plumbing of the system that well so for example are we out of the woods right now? And the answer is, I don't know. Now, if you're the Fed and the Treasury and president, you know, what do you want? What, what do you do over the weekend? I think they did what they had to do, which was they basically just said, no, 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 we're going to back up every single deposit insured or not. Don't worry about it. But can they actually do that? I don't know. But you want to bluff and say you can do that so that it's not necessary, right? The last thing you want to have to do is prove that you can do that you know, with trillions and trillions of dollars. I think there's something like $18 trillion in deposits in the US or something crazy like that. So, you know, if you actually had to do that, you're probably blowing up the economy with inflation to, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50%. Who knows? I mean, it, it, then you're really in kind of uncharted territory if you if you were to, you know, back up everybody's deposit if the banks failed. So I mean, you got to bluff, you got to say you're going to do it. 
but you don't really want to actually have to prove it and do it. You can do it for one bank and then bluff that you've got it all for all the rest and just hope everyone's like, okay, calm down. But is this the last thing to break? You know, if they don't lower rates, which will probably jack up inflation right away anyway, if they stay with the, another rate hike or they don't lower them, maybe something else will break. And then maybe there's another contagion and, and you know, people are going to be even less believing that it can be contained the next time. So, you know, maybe a, a couple of week lag, a month lag, a three month lag, but I don't think we're out of the woods. I think they bluffed. They did what they had to do. There's some modicum of stability at the moment, but I'm still nervous. And uh, I just think it's good for Bitcoin because I think that people are going to say, where can I put this money that's safe where there's no counterparty risk? And there's not a whole lot of places you could buy gold, but if you store your gold in the third party location, that's counterparty risk. So you're going to have to buy the gold and store it in your house. Not a lot of people are not comfortable with that. Also, how are you going to spend the gold easily? How are you going to send it? Are you going to verify it? Gold is, it was a good technology for its time, but there's a better one now. So I think this is going to be kind of a, a wake up call for a lot of people in the West who were like, why do I need Bitcoin? You know, that's for Zimbabwe and Argentina and Venezuela where the money's not stable. I think there's a big wake up call going on right now. It could be an inflection point with that. So anyway, that was just my take on that. Again, I'm not 100% on any of it. And I'm still wary of these banks. You know, I don't have a great answer. I bought some treasuries because I figured if this bank is not where I want to put it, I may as well just put them in, in the really short term, like one month, just so I can get some liquidity if I need it quickly and not be locked in for years, even though it's a pain in the ass to keep rebuying the treasuries. But I want to have pipeline to buying some Bitcoin if I need to at short notice, because I think it could get expensive and they could also start trying to cut off the, the on and off ramps to it. We'll see what happens. It's uh, very weird times right now. Other things going on. I've been just a little frustrated. I don't know. It's like bad for your mental health to, to think in terms of getting justice, getting vindication for what you've said. You know, I shouldn't really care. Like I don't really need anybody's approval certainly not professionally anymore. I don't have any job that I need you know, to advance in. And you know, I don't need people to think well of me for my job prospects or anything. So it doesn't really matter. There's no real concrete thing. But just as a sense of it really fucking pisses me off that like everybody knows it was a lab leak. And there were so many people calling me a conspiracy theorist for saying that for the last three years. And there's no acknowledgement at all. I mean, just none like, hey, oh yeah, me on Twitter publicly calling you this. No acknowledgement at all. You know, I had a guy, a colleague, a guy I know decently, not that well, but a little bit, who's like on me, snarking at me for a fictional story I wrote that apparently someone else, some truly moronic person, I don't know who it is because he didn't say, uh, had been sending around, which is called Conspiracy. And it's a story about a guy who says he knows that the Chinese spy balloon is basically distributing a virus that's totally harmless, but that they're going to use to blame all the uh, excess death on and deflect from the vaccine death. Somebody was sending that story around as evidence that I had gone crazy into conspiracies when like the first line of that story was, I don't care about saying this, the world is so ugly that a bullet to the back of the head would be a mercy killing at this point. And he's acting like that was me, that I have some secret source. I was claiming I had a secret source and that I don't mind getting a bullet to the back of the head because it would be a mercy killing. Like how stupid do you have to be to not realize that's obviously fiction and there's like links to three other conspiracy posts where it's a guy whose colleague, he, he was a translator at some WAF uh, multinational conference or something. And all of these things were, were obviously fiction, 
and yet, you know, there's a guy sending that around as evidence that I personally am saying that this is what's happening. And the thing about the snark was he snarked at it because I was talking about how people, you know, the problem isn't that you fell for the, that lab leak was a conspiracy theory or that take this vaccine, you won't get this virus or the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation. It's not just that you fell for that. It's that you keep believing the people who told you those things. You're still trusting them. And in response to those things, which people really did pass off as facts, they really were telling you as a matter of fact that they knew that the Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, that they knew that the vaccine stops the spread, that they knew that the lab leak was crazy, that it was definitely of zoonotic origin. They knew this stuff for a fact. And they're saying this is a fact. And he's trying to counterpoint me and snark me by saying, well, you thought the balloon was spreading a virus and you're promoting that as a fact. And what's funny is not only was that a fictional character that if you just had like any common sense, you would realize was just a story I wrote. But also even in that story, I didn't even want to point this out because it was just already ridiculous. But he says, I don't know any of these things for certain. Even the crazy narrator who doesn't mind a bullet to the back of the head because he considers it a mercy killing because he's so stressed out about the state of affairs says, I don't know this for certain. He even says that. Whereas these people saying all this stuff that turned out to be totally provably false and which all of these people believed um, was taken as fact. So even in the craziest context, that guy was like, well, I don't know this for certain. And then there's some other person, apparently, I don't know who it is, but someone like so stupid, obviously, like so beyond stupid, so cognitively challenged that they were not only believed it, but were like sending it to other people. But I do like that people are like reading my stuff, even hate reading it and conspiracy reading it to try to manufacture because um, they must be desperate, right? They must feel like because the things I've said have panned out, they must be desperate to grab some ground back to say, well, look how crazy he is, you know, to, to, to show themselves. They're desperate. They're desperate at this point. And, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but that, that uh, scene in the movie Heat where Robert De Niro, he's won, right? He's gotten the caper pulled off. He's got the money. He's got his girlfriend. They're about to go to the, air, the airstrip to get the private plane to get out of, get out of the country. And then he remembers this guy who fucked him over, this rat, and he just can't let it go. So he turns the car around, goes to the hotel, kills that fuck, but gets caught and killed in the process. And you got to remember, I, I've thought about it, writing like a, a sub stack with every single tweet. Like there's, I, I've got probably maybe not a thousand, but in the hundreds of tweets from all these people, guys being like, he got his whole family sick because he was unvaccinated. This is when I had COVID. Look at him. He got his whole family sick and you know, you're an anti-vaxxer and you're killing people. I, I've got a hundred tweets. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're QAnon. I've got hundreds of tweets that I could just all just put. I'm sure a lot of them have been deleted. I screenshotted just a couple of them a long time ago, but I don't, I, I'm sure a lot have been deleted and wisely. So there's one guy in the industry who, if I even look up any tweet uh, that I made to look for a tweet that I made, and I, then I see that I interacted with him, all deleted. It's all deleted. Maybe he's, he's smart to delete it because it's embarrassing what these guys were arguing. But I've got like all the, the receipts, you know, somewhere. And, and obviously if they haven't deleted them, I could screenshot it. And I've thought about just writing like a scathing substack, and I'm sure people would get entertained by it. But it's a little bit like Robert De Niro and Heat where you're like, don't go back. Don't engage with sophists. Don't, don't give people even the, the credibility that they're worth engaging or even busting, right? Like argue with someone you respect. Argue with somebody who care what they think. You know, you want, you want them to get your point of view. It's important to get it across. Don't argue with people who are just kind of play dirty 
set up burner accounts and try to smear you, tell lies, don't care about lying. They're all just about cloud and, and their tribe and ingratiating themselves with the right people and sending the right signals to other people. Those people you should engage with. So I, I think of that heat scene a lot. And then the, and it was a brilliant scene. And the message was obviously like, you won, dude, take the W. Go, get, go enjoy your life. Don't think about it. Don't do it. All it does is harm your mental health. Yes, you may get the satisfaction temporarily of embarrassing somebody or taking them down, but like they, they've taken themselves down. They've discredited themselves. What are you doing? All you're doing is giving them credibility. Like you need to add to it. You don't need to add to it. The, the virtue is its own reward. Vice is its own punishment. Then there's the bad brains lyric, which I used to quote, which is, uh, nor taketh delight in the way that the unrighteous go. You shouldn't be taking the del taking delight in the way that the unrighteous go. Let it go. Let it go. Just be cool. It's just very hard because I've always been the type of person, you know, who wants vindication. I want justice. I feel like that's bullshit. You told a lie about me. It was bullshit. You're now discredited. I want to see it enacted. And I feel strongly about that. But save it for the people with power. Save it for the you know, the architects of the COVID response, the people who actually still have power, not these desperate laptop class losers who are still holding on to a failing narrative and just their echo chamber of, of people who are so desperate to belong, they're willing to lie and smear people. Let them, leave them to their own fates. You know, people who are so epistemically challenged that they'll still put another booster in themselves despite all the evidence that's coming out. Let them, leave them to their fate. Some people are unreachable. Some people are such lost souls. You got to cut them loose. Don't think about them. Don't engage with them. That's, that's the best way you can handle it. But it's, not, it's contrary to my nature, right? I'm a fighter by nature. I always wanted to fight people who um, would pick a fight with me or defend myself. But it, it's been a, a lesson that um, I've learned a couple lessons. Like one is there was a guy who I, I used to work with, not at Rotowire, partner company. I won't mention him by name. I don't really dislike the guy. But I used to think he was kind of my friend and I would try to persuade him of, you know, like what we should be doing and how this should work out. And every time it would fail miserably and he would just like pretend to listen and then be like, no, we're doing this and that's how it's got to be. And then I would be sort of like the problem guy because I had a just different opinion. And I learned like the way to deal with someone like that is don't realize they're not your friend and just sort of give them vague assurances that you agree with them and then ignore them and do whatever you want. It was like, you have to decide, like if there's somebody who's your, your real friend, then you speak your mind, you speak from the heart, you tell them what you really think, you try to you know, navigate that honestly. But don't do that with people who are not your friend, who just have an agenda, give them what they need and then, and then do what you want anyway and throw them a tiny bone just to like shut them up basically. You gotta just manage them in the way that's beneficial for yourself. You don't treat them like actual, a person with actual agency that you interact with uh, eye to eye. And I think it's similar, this lesson that I've learned is, yeah, you should fight, should fight the, uh, the people that have power over you and the people that have power over others. And you should really be relentless in, in standing up for yourself, but against losers and like people without power, you, you just, you know, maybe make an example out of one of them for a little deterrence, but you mostly ignore and let it go because their, their own punishment is being themselves. It's never going to be worse because you made it worse. It, it, there's nothing worse than being them. And you're just sort of reducing yourself to their level by even conceding that they're, you know, there's somebody that you want to engage with. So anyway, there's that. 
but it's, it's just, it's just not my nature to uh, back down, but I, I know it's for the best. So I'm going to do it. It's funny. I just made a post on this Twitter. I've been thinking about this. People reason backward. They want to avoid cognitive dissonance and emotional discomfort. So they think, well, if the lab leak's true and our own scientists and experts actually funded the research into it and caused COVID and then covered it up and denied it and lied to us about it. And if that were true, then all the people I trusted were badly duped. All the experts, all the doctors, all my peers and colleagues that I, that I put trust in and who I get my beliefs from, they would all have to have been totally duped. And these other people, these dumb, uneducated people, or these right-wingers, these MAGA people, whatever you want to call them, um, would have been right. And that prospect is so disturbing to me. It's so unpleasant for me to consider that it must be wrong. It must be that it's of zoonotic origin. It must be. Or same thing, you know, if the mRNA shot really didn't do anything to stop the spread, it was totally pointless to mandate, and it harmed so many people, it killed a lot of people, injured a lot of people severely and permanently. If that were true, then the doctors I trust and the people on social media I trust, they would have been so misinformed and so certain. These people advocating for, you know, segregating society based on vaccination. So they, they'd be so wrong, so idiotic. I mean, giving such terrible permanently damaging advice. And these are the people I trust. So that can't be true. It has to be conspiracy theory because if it were true, that would be so unpleasant for me. It's got to be false. And now this is backwards reasoning, right? If you first want to assess whether something's true or false on the merits, and then you, you know, deal with the fallout from it, you know, whether you're wrong, if you, if you told somebody to take it, you got to apologize to them. You got to rethink your worldview. It's very painful, very difficult, very humbling to be so wrong about something so consequential, especially if you took this medicine, if you gave it to your kids, you know, you got to figure out, you know, the best ways to detox. I've read some things on that, by the way, if you're concerned about that, apparently natokinase, the enzyme, you got to take it on an empty stomach. Don't eat for half an hour, but apparently that helps break it up. It's an enzyme that I think it's from a silkworm or maybe it's serapeptase that's a silkworm, but natokinase, maybe it's a, a bacteria. The Japanese eat it. Apparently it smells really bad, but it's very healthy. And it's sort of, it's an enzyme that uh, eats away. And, and they, they say, some people say that, that seems somewhat trustworthy, that it will eat away at some of the spike protein and help uh, detox you. That quercetin is another uh, supplement that apparently helps detox the spike detoxes the uh, spike protein. And there's bromelain, which is another uh, enzyme that you can take on an empty stomach to apparently detox or consume the protein. So again, I don't know for sure that those are going to work. Um, I read them from various sources that seem somewhat reliable, but, but the point is they're all, you can, you can look up the side effects for yourself, but there's like no side effects. The, the side effect is they're not necessarily cheap. It might be 20 or 30 bucks for a bottle of the supplements. But if you can spare 20 or 30 bucks and you're worried about this, natokinase, bromelain, and quercetin, the bromelain and natokinase need to be on an empty stomach. Don't eat for half an hour afterwards. The reason why I took ivermectin when I had COVID and the reason why um, I would recommend these supplements, even though I don't know if they work, is because the, the side effect profile is so benign. And again, read it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But I don't think there's any side effects to worry about. And so that's the kind of thing you should be experimenting with, right? Like even if it turns out to be bullshit, well, you waste a little money, but you didn't cause yourself any harm. And it's, I think, really important to experiment with no side effect or minimal side effect, medicines, herbs, vitamins, supplements all the time. Read about stuff. Some of these things can help. And of course, it's not really uh, promoted by 
large scale studies or proven or anything because there's no money in that stuff. It's not, you know, it's not like a patented drug. These are supplements that, you know, the supplement companies make money off of them, but it's not like some multi-billion dollar Pfizer drug. I mean, this is, this is small potatoes. So um, I take a bunch of different supplements, vitamin D. By the way, there was a study that came out that nobody with a vitamin D level over something like 50 ever dies from a respiratory virus. Like that just doesn't happen. Like the people who die are always low in vitamin D. Again, don't know if that's 100% true, but I do know that the complications with COVID were all correlated with low vitamin D levels. People with high vitamin D levels apparently did very well against COVID. So um, I take vitamin D supplements. It's one of the supplements I take. And again, I could be mistaken, but when you're talking about a very low risk intervention, that's the kind of thing you should be... Uh, experimenting on, not mRNA experimental therapies that who the fuck knows long-term what that's going to do. Now we already know something short-term, there've been horrible adverse effects, but long-term we still don't know. So had I taken it, I'd be trying this stuff, natokinase, bromelain, and quercetin, and probably others. You can do your own research and find out what they are, but that's just that. There's another scandal. There was a Cochrane review, which is supposedly the gold standard of reviews of, uh, publications that review things. And they said masks showed no efficacy whatsoever. But then apparently one of the, uh, I don't know if it was an administrator or like a person on the staff of Cochrane or one of the researchers themselves said, well, it didn't really say that, that masks didn't work. It just said that there were no, we didn't prove that masks work in terms of population-wide safety or something like that. And then it turned out that this New York Times columnist who had advocated uh, heavily for masks was uh, pressuring, was leaning on that researcher who caved or that administrator. I don't know which it was. And so that it did really nothing to undermine the review. So there's this whole other round of back and forth, but whatever, do whatever you want, wear a mask if you want. I'm pretty convinced that the research shows there's absolutely no efficacy. There's certainly the places that where there was more mask compliance didn't do any better. And uh, masks themselves have carcinogens. They're not worn properly. Inhaling your own CO2 is bad. So I don't have to talk to you about masks. That's any rational person's already ditched that a long time ago. So I'm probably just beating a dead horse there. Last thing, some good news. This will be a shorter one this time, but uh, some good news on the Portugal house front. We were in uh, bureaucratic hell and because we just couldn't get these these, these properties approved for building. And I wrote a letter to one of them uh, because I was so frustrated and and Heather was like, ah, they're not going to care. I'm like, I just want to write it. It really bothers me. And she helped me edit it because mine was a lot harsher and she softened it up. And then I re-edited her edits, but accepted most of them, sent it to the architects and he attached it uh, to the submission. And apparently the letter really helped because it went over the head of the very petty administrator who was not sort of blocking us. And basically she blocked us because she said they have to get send this out to the environmental board of Portugal to have them rule on it. And a year and a half later, they sent it back saying, no, 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 we didn't need to rule on this. It just takes them forever to get to anything. And so she fucked us for a year and a half for no reason. But then this letter helped um, them remove her from the process, went over her head, so to speak, even though she was the head of it. And apparently it was like the cabinet of the president was reading this letter that I wrote in English. I don't know if they translated, but most of the Portuguese, especially like the educated you know, political class speaks English fluently. And so uh, it was a good letter. It was, I just said, look, you know, I'm, I, this is a dream of ours to have a property and, and to build it and for my family and my daughter's 11. And, you know, if, if, if this takes years and years, then she's going to be too old to care to go. And I'm almost 52 and, you know, I'm not going to live forever. Like this is your, by delaying this, you're basically 
making this pointless and just tell me now if you're never going to accept it. You know, I don't, I don't need to get an acceptance two years from now. And apparently the letter uh, said, you know, we're restoring the house respectfully to the area. It's an old house. It's going to fall apart if nobody restores it. It's going to add value to the area. I don't know why they're giving us such a hard time. I understand environmental concerns, but this is, this is ridiculous. We're not building a McMansion here. And apparently the letter helped, he said, and uh, that's going to get green lit. And it did pending some other reports. So hopefully in a week or two, that'll get green lit. That is good news. We may actually, you know, it's still going to be like a year or so before we can use anything, but it's moving along finally. Speaking of like denying people, you know, what they really want bureaucratically, you know, Portugal is really good at that. I mean, I don't know if they're doing it on purpose. They're understaffed. I think there's an Ed Dowd report coming on, coming up on how much disability the mRNA shot has caused. And that disability may be playing into the fact that, that people are you know, having a hard time finding workers. And then maybe, you know, even places like Portugal, which is highly vaccinated, is having a lot of trouble processing anything. It's not just housing permits and building permits. It's also immigration is fucked. My driver's license that I got in September still hasn't been mailed here. It's March, six months later, it's still not arrived yet. I mean, there's just backlogs of everything. And maybe, you know, part of that's just their insane Kafkaesque bureaucracy, but some of it may be because people are sick a lot more often or disabled or unable to work and they're having trouble replacing those people. But there is something about bureaucratic bottlenecks and bureaucratic delays that is very effective in deterring a certain kind of behavior. And, and I'm writing something about this, about Twitter. I looked at my uh, analytics metrics on, on Twitter and my profile views are up 200%. I've been tweeting more, I think, because of baseball and other stuff, 200%. Everything's up 200%, but my page views, my engagements are down. So how is all of my activity and even my profile views way up, but the engagement way down? Well, I know how because I was shadow banned before, whether that's still now, still happening now, or the algorithm is flagging me because a lot of these woke baseball people blocked me or whatever, and I have too many blocks per follower. I don't know what the, what the metric is, but Elon Musk hinted at some kind of metric having to do with that. But whatever the metric is, I have less engagement than I did when the hall monitors were in charge four or five months ago. So basically I've got less engagement on Twitter than, than before Elon Musk took over. And when I complain about it, some people say, well, you know, they're just, the, the whole, the code base is so fucked up, you know, like they have to rebuild it. They have to figure it out. And I'm just thinking, okay, look, I'm just talking about the following tab. The reason I know this is fucked is because the people on the following tab where you just are supposed to get in chronological order, the tweets from the people you follow, I don't see like half of the key follows that I have, but I'll see them on the for you tab, which is the algorithmic feed, which you're, you can opt into. But the problem with that is why are they fucking with the following tab? Why, that should just be in order. Why is it the algorithm downgrading or making invisible certain people's tweets? I never see Ted Bell's tweets. <laughs> I see them on the for you tab, maybe because I've clicked on them or interacted with them a bunch his show up on my for you, but they don't show up on the following tab. So there's, they're algorithmically suppressing certain people. And I assume that's what's happening to me because it's happening for my follows. So I'm thinking about this and it's not ideological, right? Because Elon Musk seems to uh, certainly be much more neutral. He's not banning the, the hall monitors either. He's, he's letting the speech police say all the speech police stuff they want to say. You know, they may be blocked also and be getting their speech curtailed from that reason. But there's no ideological canceling or deplatforming of those people. And of course, a lot of people like Ed Dowd and 
um, Steve Kirsch and stuff have been replied and Robert Malone have been reinstated on Twitter. So that's all good. Free speech. Great. But yet, you know, my engagement is lower than before. I, you know, maybe it's just because uh, people aren't interested in what I have to say anymore. It could be that, but no, because when I did that little hack where you locked your account, I got five times the engagement immediately. And people are like, Oh, I haven't seen you in six months. And then they disabled that hack for obvious reasons. That's kind of a stupid hack that locking your account would make a difference. So that he has the excuse, like he just took this over. A lot of people quit. The code was a mess, but I started thinking a little bit more conspiratorially. And I started thinking, well, if you really wanted to control people and control the discourse, and you're a lot smarter than the apparatchiks at the FBI and large media corporations and the Twitter Stasi that they had hired, you would do it. Elon Musk is doing more than what those idiots were doing. Because if you start to um, discriminate against people uh, ideologically and just say, okay, all, any tweet that is for this candidate is, is going to be um, reduced. Obviously, you can swing an election or you can do things in the short term that are bad, but eventually everyone's going to know, and they did know that there was a bias against certain viewpoints. And then people are going to send other people more to Substack or people who have those viewpoints are going to go outside the platform and start to find alternatives little by little to get their information. They may still participate on Twitter because so many people are there, the network effect, but they're still going to be gaining their information and gaining strength outside the system. So that's a really bad way to control viewpoints. You're going to have them either go underground or find alternative outlets. But if you really wanted to control people, if you're really smart, and Elon Musk, is, if, if anything, is smarter than these idiots, you would let all the viewpoints be aired. You would just want to control them and you control them through reach. But if you're controlling them through reach ideologically, then they're going to know and the same problem is going to arise. But if you're really clever, you're going to control them through an algorithm that just says if people are blocked or something, something sort of neutral, people are going to try to game the algorithm or, or whatever they can do. But you've kind of got all, you know, you've got total control via algorithmic bureaucratic throttling. You don't throttle them because of what they said. You throttle them based on certain metrics. And now you've got control without a revolt. Now people are frustrated about their reach, but they can't be like, fuck you, you're just you know, against me. It's not even personal. To the extent I'm being throttled, it's not personal to me. It's not because of my views. It may be because the algorithm is saying, oh, you're blocked by a lot of people. It may be for some other reason, but it's not personal. It's not about me. And so then you know, people tend to get a little bit less resistant. If it's not personal, if you don't take it personally, and I don't, it's more like, what can you do? It's more like the company policy thing where you're like, well, that's just the way the algorithm works and it's a black box and there's nothing I can do. Unless I can get his attention to rewrite the algorithm, there's nothing I can do. And so then you sort of control your speech or people control their speech to not get blocked or to be a certain way. And you've now succeeded without creating a revolt. And there's also you know, some people who, large followings who say some of the similar things that I'm saying, they're probably not re reduced. So you can't even get people and say, hey, you know, come to your Substack because I'm the one who's, who's saying this stuff that, no, because there's other people who are, are not reduced who are saying stuff. It just becomes um, a mechanism for control. And if it were intentional, and I'm not saying it is because I don't know that, it would be extremely clever, much more clever than the heavy handed way they did it before. And I was thinking about this whole banking thing to come full circle if the banks had to be bailed out in mass, right? If a lot of banks started having runs, if another thing broke and people really got spooked, one thing that they might do, and it makes sense, and this has been a little bit in the works, and they've certainly been talking about this, is have you know the Fed just say, okay, your bank failed, but don't worry, 
type in your social security number and your identifying information, and you'll see that your account from Bank X is intact at the Federal Reserve Bank, the CBDC, the uh, central bank digital currency. It's all there. It's fine. So now we're backstopped. We're so relieved that we didn't lose this money we had in the bank, but it's actually been taken over by a central entity that supplies all the money that backstops it. Great. We're set. Can't, can't fail. It's the Fed itself. And at first works fine. You, you hook up your bill pay, all that stuff to it. But then say, you know, you want to donate to the Canadian truckers or you want to donate to, or uh, you want to contribute to my Substack. You know, they're like, eh, I don't know. You know, you can't do that. Or even worse, they, they let you do it. But people who contributed to Joe Rogan or contributed to Glenn Greenwald or contributed to Taibi, whoever you know, contributed to, those people get a little bit of a negative on their social credit score. They are, there's a little, they're a little bit more scrutinized what they're buying. You know, they, they, they realize that, hey, did, did you get a, a notice? Just a notice, say, you know, are you sure you want to spend that 10000 on this vacation to Mexico? Mexico can be dangerous. You know, something comes up before you're allowed to spend the money. And they're like, no, I don't get that. I went to Mexico, didn't get that at all. And then they start thinking, what is it that I did that would make them do that? And they think, ooh, I donated to Greenwald. And then you just, people are just like, eh, I'm just not going to give money to any substacks really because I just, it's too much of a risk. I can't risk getting on the bad list. And I'm not really sure what the list consists of. And this is obviously scary, right? This, and, and that's the beginning. That's just the beginning. You know, in the end, it's outright like you can't spend on this, you can't spend on that. But the beginning would just be a couple things here or there. And people say, ah, it's not a big deal. Just, but you'd start to have this sort of self censorship with your money, self censorship spending where you don't spend money on things that you think might get flagged. I, I already think about this in Twitter. Like if you were to follow Alex Jones, is he even on Twitter? If you were to follow him, you know, would, and other people saw that you were following him, would they be like, wait, you follow Alex Jones? That's not cool. Or even, you know, Donald Trump, who's not on Twitter, but used to be. Oh, you, everybody followed Trump, so you wouldn't get in trouble for that. But you follow so-and-so who's a bad guy. Oh, look at who he follows, right? He's a bad guy. And I mean, I'm guilty of it too. I see people follow like total hacks in the media and I'm like, oh, they're getting bad information. I don't think they should be deplatformed from society, but I do think, okay, this person is purposely getting bad information. I don't know why. Maybe it's just to see what it is, but it's the kind of thing where following the wrong people, donating to the wrong people starts to build your profile. They say like, you know, you don't need a, a resume anymore. People can just go to your social media and see how you speak, what you post, what your content is like. I mean, that that's what I would do if I were hiring somebody, at least check. Not to care about what political viewpoint they have, but you know, if if you have certain indicators, people are going to, it just makes sense, right? Like why sit through an interview or look for a resume, which is a curated presented version of yourself when they can look at what you're doing on social media. Now that's also a curated presented version, but you know, the, the version that you're curating and presenting outside of the job context might be much more informative. And so we're already in a world where people are checking, but the problem is that your bank your government should not be taking those things into account. Private employer, different story. But you're going to have a situation where it's going to be very tempting for people who have power to look at the people who might be a threat to their power and not like, you know, I'm running for president or something like that, but just like, oh, I'm making arguments against things that they need to pass. Or if they supported, for example, the mRNA shot, staked their candidacy on that and People like me are saying whoever did that might be guilty of a crime and you know should at least be 
uh, investigated for, you know, did they get money for this? Did they, what did they know? And when did they know it? You know, they're, they're not going to want people like me to say that or people to support that. And so they would probably look and, and if you're supporting people like Greenwald or people like Matt Taibbi, you know, they probably wouldn't want that to be supported. And so it's going to be awfully tempting if they have, you know, the levers at their disposal to say, Hey, you know, this, let's just make sure that this kind of behavior is punished via CBDC. And that's a lot of power if it's your spending. So this is, this is kind of what scares me also about the, uh, you know, it, it, if the banks start to collapse, you know, you may get a CBDC in short order. And did they do this on purpose? Some people think, you know, they raise rates this hard and this fast. And, you know, Nick Carter was saying they, they killed off the crypto banks. They don't want off ramps. They don't want an escape hatch. And so, you know, maybe they're doing this to usher in the CBDCs. Nobody's just going to voluntarily go for that over the bank that they know. There's no reason it would be hard to get people to do it. But if you're going to lose all your money, otherwise, sure, you're going to get your account there. I would get my account there. I'd also try to get as much out of the system as I possibly could and, and get some Bitcoin. But I would certainly like have to pay my normal fiat currency, US dollar denominated bills. And I'm not going to lose all my money. I'm going to use it, but you see the risks of it. So that's kind of like the uh, dystopian endgame possibility here, which obviously I hope doesn't come to pass. Um, anyway, it's gone on for a bit. Till next time.